Welcome to the new Health Club podcast. If you want to know about psychedelics as new mental health tools, you came to the right place. I talk to innovators, thought leaders and disruptors, creating the future of mental health and mental wellness. This podcast deals with drugs. Drugs are dangerous and you should not do drugs. Furthermore, the use and or trade of drugs may be punishable by law. This podcast is not suitable for people under the age of 18. This episode of the New Health Club podcast is part of our special Heal Soul series, which is sponsored by Dr. Bronner's, the activist soap company from California. Dr. Bronner's is a family-owned company founded in 1948 that's dedicated to honoring the vision of its founder, Emmanuel Bronner, by making personal care products of the highest quality and by dedicating profits to promote a better world for all. The Bronner family started making soap in 1858 here in Germany and carries on the family soap-making tradition today by using the company as an engine for progressive social change. Dr. Bronner's dedicates profits to organizations working in support of regenerative organic agriculture, animal rights, community betterment, criminal justice reform, fair pay and fair trade, and drug policy reform, which includes the responsible and equitable integration of psychedelic medicine into American and global culture. For more information on Dr. Bronner's in Germany, please visit drbronner's.de. For more information on Dr. Bronner's globally and in the United States, please visit drbronner.com. Hi, and welcome to a new episode of the New Health Club podcast. My guest today is Melissa Lavassani, the chairwoman of Decriminalize Nature DC, the movement in Washington DC to decriminalize psilocybin, aka magic mushrooms, helping to treat depression. Melissa is the most normal person ever, as she says, becoming the face of a psychedelic movement. Which means Melissa is a mom of two. She's married, she has a job, she has a family life and so on. But still, there is a taboo that if it comes to being or becoming a mom, and that's depression in or before pregnancy. Something that Melissa experienced and that we address in this conversation. Lavasani had tried the usual medication and therapy, battling her depression, but nothing helped until she heard Paul Stamets talking about the healing power of magic mushrooms on Joe Rogan's podcast. After trying microdosing with magic mushrooms, she felt like a human being again, as Melissa says. Her own healing story made her the perfect face of Decrim Washington with the support of Dr. Bronner's. We talk about the so-called baby blues, which is the word we learned for postpartum depression, why becoming a mother is a full-on identity crisis. We talk about how normal moms can be the best spokespersons for psychedelics and why it's good to convince as many Republicans as possible, especially in the upcoming election, that psilocybin will help saving lives. Please enjoy the conversation with the great Melissa Lavasani. We're very happy to be here with Melissa Lavasani, um, the chairwoman of Decriminalize Washington, or DC, you call it. Mm -hmm. So um, I read this interesting article just about you, um, and I thought it was so great um, that you basically said, what are the moms in your school are going to say if they <laughs> realize, oh, she has something to do with psychedelics and they don't know what it is. So, yeah. but um, it seems that, 
what I find is great is you come from a so-called very normal background into this thing. So, and um, just tell us a little bit how that happened, how you as a normal person got into psychedelics. <laughs> I feel the weight of this normal title, but uh, yeah, I had zero experience with psychedelics before um, any of this. So I had a lot of preconceived notions about people who took psychedelics. I thought that, you know, they were uh, trying to just constantly escape reality, couldn't deal with adulthood. Um, I, I made a lot of like really bad judgments about people and, um, you know, but I came to a very desperate place in my life where these, these substances saved me antepartum and postpartum depression with my second child. Antepartum is depression during pregnancy. Initially I thought it was somewhat benign. We don't really talk about mental health issues during pregnancy. The focus so much is on the fetus and how the fetus is growing and how um, my health is supporting the baby. And, you know, that's pretty much what is covered in American healthcare system for a pregnant woman. So I was really quickly prescribed antidepressants in a, a doctor's appointment, a regular doctor's appointment where I just like broke down in tears and started crying for no reason. You know, as soon as she sat down, she was writing me a prescription and You know, I had a few friends that have dealt with depression and um, I have watched them de over decades just try different medications, not have any relief, um, get on other medications and, you know, still on this endless cycle of pharmaceuticals. And I saw how it affected their personality as a whole. And it, it, it was very alarming for me. I even had a friend who took his own life because he could never find a solution. So I already had it in my head that antidepressants were a bit of a like black hole treatment for me. So I, you know, I took the prescription at the time. I was pretty vulnerable. I took it to the pharmacy, but, you know, I went home and I did some research before I even took any of it. And I was shocked. You know, mm -hmm. it was I understood that if I was taking this medication, that this was could potentially be a year, multiple year long struggle to find a solution. Because, you know, if that medication didn't work, I would have to wait eight weeks to, to prove itself and I would have to taper off of it. And at the time, I, I already had one child. She was three years old at the time, about to start school in D.C. I had another one on the way. I had my own career to deal with and as well as a marriage and how that changes when you add another child into your family. Like so many things were changing that it just was really scary to think about taking an antidepressant, like, and, and kind of feeling like that might not be the solution. So I decided to go a more natural route and just use talk therapy. But if anyone's done cognitive behavior therapy, it's a lot of work for the patient and it's a lot of practice and you need to be fully engaged in it and you need to go to your sessions regularly. And I, at that time, I was just, it was, I was good to just get out of bed and go to work every day. I had a lot of chronic pain with my second pregnancy and like this, the whole situation was just wearing on me. But I assumed after I delivered the baby, it would be fine. And, you know, I would go back to normal, whatever. Maybe it was just like a hormonal thing that I was experiencing. I delivered um, my son, Ramsey, in August. It was, it was beautiful for a, a few weeks. You know, I, I, I was in that new mother glow with all the challenges and everything. I was dealing with it okay, but the depression really creeped up and it hit me hard. I, 
it became from mild to severe. I was experiencing anxiety, panic attacks, um, disassociation, uh, suicidal ideation. I had a gamut of symptoms and I had no idea how to deal with them. And um, therapy at that point in time, I was just finding excuses to not go. Um, being a new mom was busy enough and then paying $400 a week sometimes, you know, mm-hmm. that's how much it costs here in D.C. because uh, it's not covered by insurance or the coverage, the insurance coverage isn't great at all. Um, so my life spiraled out of control. It began to affect how I parented my children. It was affecting me at work. It was affecting me with my marriage. And um, I was desperate to find a solution. So and, and and did you... I, did you at that time, just just a quick question, at that point, it's often very difficult or almost impossible to really communicate this to other people, probably, because what do you want? You have two great children, you're married, you have a job, so, so right. it's kind Not of... Not only this, was feeling terrible yeah. about everything, you have this immense guilt, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I... I am a person who is fortunate enough to have two graduate degrees and make a good enough salary to live in D.C. I was fortunate enough to have two children um, that came out in the world healthy, remain healthy to this day. Uh, I have I, both my parents are alive and very supportive. My husband was extremely supportive. Um, he was always trying to find solutions for me, and it still was extremely difficult. It was one of the worst times in my life. And I look back at it and I still, I don't remember a lot of it. I feel like my brain kind of just went into this survival mode of blocking mm. out some of these memories because I was in such a terrible place and I, I couldn't get myself out of it. You know, I, I, I was lucky if I had like an hour or two every day that I felt somewhat normal, but you know, everything was so negative. And with that negativity came a lot of, paranoia. And, you know, when my husband who, who meant extremely well, and he's actually trained in social work and family sciences. And he knew that two balanced parents make a really solid family. And he saw the imbalance and he tried all the solutions, but even he became frustrated with the situation. You know, one, Mm. one person can only take so much. And, um, you know, he began to lose a lot of empathy for me. It was really a terrible time in our marriage because You know, I would have a panic attack and I would be asking for help and he would just stare at me. And there was even there was even times when um, I was hearing voices and it was like and that was very alarming because I brought it up to him. Um, One time we went out to eat for lunch on Valentine's Day. I remember this moment so clearly. Um, I told him that I'd been talking to the people in our bedroom and he was like, wow, like I've lost my wife. The Hmm. look on his face was shock. And, um, to me, I, I saw his reaction to that and I never felt more disconnected from him than at that moment. And he was in constant communication. I didn't know this at the time. He was in constant communication with my parents, his parents. We didn't know what to do. Um, at that point in time, I wasn't going to therapy. I was finding every excuse to not go. And, um, we were just in straight up survival mode and trying to just shield our children from all of this. And, you know, I, I think that we did okay in that, but it's unavoidable that you, your children, your children are way more observant than you realize and mm. uh, definitely saw me at my worst moments and 
you know, we're still trying to undo some of those things that they witnessed. So, Mm. um, it's hard. And we eventually, he dragged me to couples therapy Mm -hmm. as a guy to get me back into therapy, which definitely (laughs) helped. But I mean, I attribute us reconnecting to, um, plant medicines and what I use to heal myself. Mm -hmm. But I mean, so, um, how did you get in touch the first time with, I mean, you, you, I read somewhere you, you heard the Joe Rogan podcast with um, Paul Stamets and uh, the power of mushrooms. <laughs> so, but I mean, was yeah. it how, I mean, was that something that happened just, you know, somebody sent it to you or happened randomly or did you go on the internet and was like, okay, there must be something else? Well, I was a, a Joe Rogan fan. I did find oh, okay. his, um, yeah, he's, he has a really interesting variety of guests and, um, you know, he's an athlete and I always related to him in that way. Um, I was, a, I played tennis all through college as well. So he brought a lot of, um, body mind people on his show and I was interested, but you know, I, I saw that episode with Paul Stamets and I was like, why would I even watch a, mm-hmm. a, a podcast with a mushroom scientist? Like, what's the point of that? That's so weird. I, the, I'll skip that one. But a friend yeah. of mine who, you know, I didn't confide in many people during this time, but a friend of mine who I did, who did know my struggle and was kind of watching my life unravel was like, you have to listen to this episode. And at the time we were driving down South was like, so we need to listen to this podcast. Apparently it's a few hours long. So my husband was down for it and we put it on in the car. The kids were sleeping in the back and our minds were blown. That first story that he tells of taking a hero dose of psilocybin mushrooms and climbing to a top of a tree and just telling himself repeatedly, stop stuttering, stop stuttering. And waking up the next day with no stutter blew my mind. And, um, I, at that point in time, there was no other solution on the horizon for me. Uh, we hadn't started going to couples therapy yet. We started the couples therapy after I began microdosing, but, um, at that point it was like, well, I could try this. I'd be breaking the law and I'd be in possession of a schedule one drug, which is the worst kind of drug to have in the U S. Um, but it was either that, or I was at some point in time going to take my life. You know, I was making my family miserable and I had convinced myself that if I had removed myself from this situation and removed myself from this family, that everyone would be thriving so much better than if I was around and just making everyone miserable. So it was really a life or death kind of situation for me. And I I threw caution through the wind and, you know, we began, you know, you can purchase spores online and it's completely legal in the U S and we took a chance and we grew them in our house. And, you know, the first few times, I think we had maybe built beginner's luck. We had a, a really great um, flush. And, you know, I began microdosing because at that point I had no experience with psychedelics. Uh, the thought of actually like fully having a full psychedelic experience was very intimidating for me. So I thought, well, I will begin to microdose and we'll see what happens. And within a matter of three days, I was feeling human again. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It was really astounding, but growing mushrooms is really difficult. It's they're very temperamental Mm -hmm. and contamination is always an issue when you're not in a lab setting, we're doing it in our bedroom. Um, so, you know, the supply was a little iffy 
And I never had enough to fully like see it through and fully heal from it. And I didn't know anyone else that had mushrooms on hand that could just have a steady supply to provide to me. I, I figured, you know, I got myself out of a hole. I still didn't feel totally like myself again, but at least like the suicidal thoughts had gone away. Mm-hmm. And that was a good first step. Um, and that's when ayahuasca came into play. Okay. So that you took around, you went to a, um, a retreat or you went to South America? It was actually a friend of mine who um, my husband had confided in her. Um, like I said, there was very few people we talked about mm-hmm. this with. I tried mm-hmm. to talk about this with uh, a girlfriend of mine who was um, had a child at the same time as me. And she is like, yeah, I was experienced postpartum depression too. I went and talked to a therapist and it, it kind of just went away on its own, which wasn't my experience. And that, that situation kind of intimidated me from talking about it with anyone else because You know, I tried to go to therapy as well and had no relief from it. So, um, you know, she was this, our friend was one of the people that my husband confided in because you know, this was really hard situation for him to deal with as well. When one person is severely depressed mm-hmm. like this, it affects the entire family. So um, she had been introduced to an ayahuasca shaman who works in the U.S. Um, under anonymity. He works by word of mouth. There's no website. There's no social media. It's purely word of mouth. And I had a few ceremonies with him, and he uses ayahuasca and um, San Pedro cactus, which is similar to peyote, mm-hmm. masculine-containing cactus. And... Um, I was, uh, it's like, I would, I wasn't even back to normal. I was just such a better version of myself afterwards. I wasn't healed immediately. My head was cleared to a point where I could implement changes that drastically changed my life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what would you say, I mean, what have you kind of tackled or what was it that you've seen what probably was standing in your way to become uh, let's say, a, a, you, yourself again, or like a happy mother and, and a happy wife and everything. So it must be something that seems like was a very big <laughs> thing in your way that you couldn't put away yeah. otherwise. So I, I had a very difficult delivery with my daughter. Um, she, her heart stopped beating multiple times during delivery and uh, I had to have a, a really chaotic emergency C-section And, um, I think I did experience those baby blues after she was born, but you know, I, I didn't realize it at the time. Um, because when I went back to work and I got back back into working out regularly and eating well and having my diet in order, um, I was back to myself, but in my first ayahuasca session was extremely painful and extremely emotionally painful. I had a lot of pain in um, my uterus area. Additionally, after my first ayahuasca session, I came to the realization because a lot of the work that happens isn't, it doesn't happen that night you, you drink the ayahuasca. Mm-hmm. A lot of the changes occur, continue to occur mm-hmm. as you integrate into your regular life. So after I left that ceremony, I realized that maybe my, this new birth control that I was trying, which was an IUD implant, um, maybe that could be what was affecting me. And I talked to my doctor about it and 
he was like, these new IUDs are fine. You know, there's very little Mm -hmm. hormone absorption and, um, you know, it's not going into your bloodstream enough to cause you these emotional issues, but I'll do you a favor and I'll take it out just to amuse you, which I was like, it's kind of patronizing, (laughs) but I had it removed and it had a drastic change in my life. And I wasn't even, that wasn't even on my radar. Well, I mean, I think I, I tried to take the pill two times and I don't, I, I cannot think of any time I felt worse than when I tried this. So, and it was the same thing that they were like, well, it's just very light and you won't feel anything. And I was like, I couldn't do anything. I was just unable to move. So obviously it did something. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, and I, when I had my IUD implanted, this might be too much information, but I didn't have a period for months. And my normal cycle was completely disrupted. And as soon as I had it removed, my cycle was like insane for two weeks. Like it was like everything that was needed to be like cycled out of my body and processed was not processing. And I was just holding all of it in me. And it was a real revelation that I would have never come to if I hadn't if I hadn't participated in the ayahuasca ceremony. I mean, I don't think it's too much information because maybe you heard of this great doctor, Julie Holland from, from New York. Um, she, because it's exactly what, what she writes about at the moment a lot or since a while already, like exactly these kind of parts where we're able to connect the dots, like yeah. how depression starts and why. And also, uh, I mean, if you have like, kind of depression race or like created through hormonal changes you can go to a cognitive therapy um, until the next 50 years and nothing will change in your life so it's kind of a very interesting moment I feel where you can kind of really look into things that you couldn't really talk about this like 10 years ago or even five years ago so but I mean I feel like your your experience is basically the perfect setup to to actually bring Dikram <laughs> DC to such a success yeah. that you did. So, yeah. but I mean, uh, just for the people here in Europe who don't know so much about the, this kind of term, decriminalize or decrim. So what exactly does it mean, the, the, the word decrim, decrim or decriminalize in, in that context? It's a step towards getting... Um, our government to stop seeing drug users as criminals. Um, There are a lot of dangerous drugs out there, yes, that have a propensity to be abused. Um, We are dealing with a really terrible opioid epidemic, which started with pharmaceutical companies and doctors over-prescribing pain medication. Um, Pain medication became a really big problem in our country and when th- those prices started to get way too high, people have turned to heroin. And now we have issues with people taking heroin that's not pure and it is laced with fentanyl and people are dying. So we need to begin treating people like that, not as criminals, but as somebody with an addiction who has serious mental health issues that need to be addressed. We're talking about therapies that save lives and no one should be in jail for that no of course yeah no i mean so and and this is like maybe you explain a little bit also your you're the founder basically of this organ of movement you could say like it's kind of a political movement Mm -hmm. 
Yes, we are trying to change the laws in D.C. So um, this effort is beginning to happen all over the United States. Um, mm-hmm. And it's starting at, in cities. It's the, these are the jurisdictions where um, we have local city councils who create the laws. You know, Denver was the first city. Denver, Colorado was the first city to decriminalize just psilocybin. And that, that campaign was happening at the exact same time that I was microdosing and experiencing ayahuasca in ceremony. I was healing myself. I was breaking the law, but I was also watching this incredible campaign in Denver happening. So after my second ayahuasca experience, um, I came back home and I was like, well, why can't Washington, D.C. do this? You know, we are the nation's capital. We are arguably, I don't know if this is true anymore, but we were one of the most powerful cities in the world. And, you know, people here are traumatized like people in any other city. So why not D.C.? You know, we were on, kind of on the forefront of cannabis reform. So why not be on the forefront of psychedelic reform? I work for local D.C. government. My husband has um, has worked for local D.C. government for, um, man, over 15 years now. And you know, we we knew a lot of the people in politics that would have to we'd have to have support from to get anything like this through. But, you know, we always assumed that we would be in the background. You know, we would be um, having the difficult conversations with our contacts about this subject on behalf of the campaign. We never thought that we would be the face of it. So, you know, I reached out to Denver and I was just like, what does this look like? Do you have support of the people in Denver? You know, and there was a lot of information shared and contacts handed over to us. And we just began to take meetings with people in the drug reform world. And we had no idea where this was going. And um, we eventually got connected to um, the cannabis activists in D.C., Mm -hmm. You know, they have worked with David Bronner extensively and have a long relationship of activism with him. And David Bronner recognized that D.C. would be a perfect place for a campaign like this. Mm -hmm. Um, How symbolic that the nation's capital would decriminalize psychedelics and what impact could that have for the rest of the country? Um, I didn't know David before this, but I, I knew of some of the key players in the city Um, Some of them have even worked with my husband before when he was at city council. We just went out to dinner one night and, you know, we talked about this. We talked about my story. We talked about who we knew in city council and like how we could get this through. Um, And then they just flat out said that I need to be the face of this campaign. I need to propose (laughs) the language to the board of elections. I need to be doing all the interviews and talking to these stories. And I thought they were insane. Like, I really thought they were insane. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm not, I, I have worked on political campaigns before, but I've never been the face of anything. I was totally happy with being in the background and not having the attention And, you know, it took about a month of them trying to talk me into this. And, you know, ultimately I said, no, I was, and that's when I was having that moment. I was like, what are the moms at school going to think about this? Sure. I mean, and rightfully so, because it's not that everybody is like, oh yeah, sure. It makes total sense. I totally get it. It's not the case. I mean. And not only am I talking about taking drugs, but I'm talking about like very serious, severe mental health issues that Mm -hmm. not a lot of people talk about, you know, postpartum depression is 
very real. It's marketed as the baby blues. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's, we're told that this is a, oh, it's just your hormones changing. You just had a child. So many things in your body are changing. This is natural. What I went through was not natural at all. No one should feel that terrible. No one should feel that alone. And no one should feel helpless and not having any solutions. So, you know, ultimately what changed my mind from a no to a yes, I, I, I said no. I texted I texted no. I was like, I'm not, I can't do this. I can't ensure my kids will be safe if I do this. So, um, I, I'm, I'm going to bow out. I will help with the campaign, but you know, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be a face. And I laid in bed that night and I just, I got so emotional. I got really upset. I was like, I think this is an opportunity for me to make a real impact on the world. When your moment was supposed to come, the pandemic hit, and then you still were able to pull up kind of a big number. Like what is it is fated to happen or... Yeah. I just like never give up. <laughs> like I couldn't ever fathom uh, abandoning this campaign, even in a pandemic. I, yeah, we, we had an entire field strategy for how we needed to get signatures to qualify the ballot initiative to be in this November election. And the beginning of March, the city went into a shutdown. We needed to figure out how we were going to adapt to that. We had, no idea what this looked like. We initially thought it was going to be a month long. Uh, we thought that the city would be shut down for a month. Um, everyone would stay home and this, this virus would be under control and we were gravely wrong. <laughs> and so we had to ask the board of elections to hold our petition and not move forward. We did, we needed to recalibrate and uh, re-strategize. So we designed this um, petition at home program We could mail the petition to people. They could sign it at home and send it back to us. However, the current laws and regulations didn't allow us to do that. You know, these petitions are circulated by people traditionally outside of metro stations, outside mm -hmm. of busy areas where people are um, walking, commuting to work, going out to bars. Yeah. And yeah. none of that was available to exactly. us anymore. Mm -hmm. So we could sign at home. So we had to have our city council... Uh, passed some laws that allowed us to mail the petitions to people. We had no idea what the returns would be like. We had no idea if people would even check their mail. You know, regular mail is such, um, you know, we're all getting emails and mm -hmm. we all pay our bills online now. No one's really checking their mail. So we threw caution to the wind and, you know, we just tried it. And um, ultimately it did prove to be somewhat successful. We had about 10,000 signatures sent back to us. There was a few issues with petitions not being filled out properly, but um, at the same time, the city began to open up again. Our numbers started to flatten in D.C., and we went into phase one of reopening, um, and we started to set up tables, which, again, we had to re-strategize sure. for phase yeah. It wasn't a free-for-all by any means. There was still nobody out on the streets, But we started to set up tables um, outside of grocery stores because that's the one place that people were going. Um, so that, and you know, we had we hired a health and safety officer. Um, we ensured that um, you know we were following all the protocols and practicing good social distancing. Uh, but you know, it was still not the kind of foot traffic you would sure, need. And, never, yeah, yeah. Twenty-five thousand signatures was so far away. Um, but then the last 
two weeks of the signature drive, the city went into phase two, which means more and more outdoor dining was allowed. There's more people felt more comfortable to be out in public spaces. So um, we saw this coming and we um, made a call to our national allies and people flew in to D.C. from all over the country to help us gather signatures on the streets. Um, so again, we, that was a, a new strategy that we were trying and we had no idea if we, it would work and if we had the foot traffic we needed, but people came from North Carolina, Colorado, uh, California, Oregon, Washington state there. People came from out of the woodwork that have worked on other decrim campaigns mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and we're having, we're having these conversations and we're very knowledgeable about the issue and it was it was the first time we'd had face to face interaction with the voters of D.C. And it was really interesting to hear the conversations that these people were having. And it was overwhelmingly positive. Um, you know, when this is a really heavy subject matter and, you know, we've all been brainwashed into thinking these substances are very damaging to us physically and emotionally. But um, the research that's been coming out sure. is was exactly opposite. So it was an interesting process to go through, extremely stressful. Um, the moment you got comfortable, something changed and you needed to recalibrate. We have a really solid staff and core group of volunteers that really believe in this issue. And, you know, everyone did the work that we needed to do to get it done. And we eventually got over 36,000 signatures. We're still getting signatures in the mail, actually. And we we're past wow. our deadline. We're already certified on the ballot, but um, it's still amazing to see that people support this. I mean, how do you think the single um, decrim movements are kind of differ from each other? So is there a certain way of being a real DC um, <laughs> decrim <laughs> activist? I mean, we frequently consult with our allies across the country. Um, and it's interesting to see the kind of messaging that other campaigns use is, is much more flowery and, you know, a lot more uh, really like what you'd expect from a psychedelic campaign. But in D.C., we've had to mute that a little bit, you know, and using certain words would really deter a lot of people who would normally be on our side away assume, because they would assume that this is some kind of hippie effort to, you know, party with these substances. And we need, we are constantly drilling at home to people that this is not something that we're talking about to party with, with it. We're talking about traumas and mental health issues. And, you know, we're leading with the data and the science people here are very educated and they will read um, the research on something like this. So right. um, I, I think that it'll, It's interesting to see the dynamic on West Coast cities that do this. And, you know, D.C. is the first East Coast city to do this and culturally so different than the West Coast. That it'll be interesting to see what other jurisdictions in the West Coast in the middle of the country, which um, mm -hmm. be surprising. But, you know, I think it's happening and it'll be cool to see how each of these campaigns vary based on the culture of the city. Mm -hmm. And um, somebody told me that the best thing would be to get as much Republicans to get on this <laughs> as possible. 
because yes, yes. Because so, then yeah, it immediately the has a different. Are, you hear all about drug reform. They they get mm-hmm. it that this is a social justice issue. This is a healthcare issue. Um, they're typically known as being more the more compassionate party. Um, but Republicans, there's a different angle that you use when you talk to somebody that has more conservative views. You know, they value people in the military and veterans that go find wars for us. And, you know, we have veterans that are spokespeople for our campaign that appeal to that, you know, it's like, it's just all about knowing your audience, knowing who you're talking to and knowing what appeals to them. You know, the message is always the same. We're talking about healing trauma and mental health. It's just how you frame it for them. You know, we've had some resistance from Republicans in Congress. One of them did try to stop the initiative from moving forward. But even he admitted that the science proves that psilocybin is an effective therapy. So, I mean, this is one of those nonpartisan subject matters. Mm-hmm. This, these are issues that affect everybody. They're universal. Mental health, you know, you can be extremely wealthy and still be addicted to substances that are harming your, you, your life, and your family. You know, it doesn't, ma- it's, doesn't matter what, how much money you're making or what your political views are. Well, I mean, there, there are really a couple of examples in the last couple of years from celebrities just, I mean, Anthony Bourdain is like, to me, it was the most shocking thing. I've, I mean, I still can't. Hooked up by Anthony Bourdain. I don't know what it is about him, but his, I, I always, I was a big fan of him. I loved his show. Um, I yeah. loved who he was. He was just such a cool person to me, had a cool job. Everything was great, right? I mean, supposedly. And cultures was open-minded, you know, was very in touch with his shortcomings. And when he took his life, it was like, holy shit. You know, like this is really something that you can lose control and it can your life can very quickly be taken away from you. And it doesn't matter who you are or what your life experiences or how Mm. much you get to travel and how much you get to do and the people you meet. Like you can still be so miserable that you just want to end your life and how tragic that is. Right. Like it is. Yeah. How tragic is it that sometimes you just don't even stand a chance against these issues. But I mean, I'm still curious how you, what you say to, to the moms that approach you, <laughs> because I find that fascinating. <laughs> well, you know, so when we kicked off the campaign in mm-hmm. January, there were friends of ours that had no clue that I was even dealing with the kind of postpartum depression I was dealing with. You know, it, this was a very isolating issue. I didn't feel comfortable just talking about it with anybody and everybody, but a lot of my friends in my inner circle, as soon as, you know, because there was journalists at our kickoff party where we announced the campaign. And um, as soon as the, the article ran the next day, I had friends reaching out to me, apologizing to me and saying, if we knew we would have done something. And, you know, to me, that's, that's very nice to hear, but also, um, you know, no one could have saved me at that point in time. You know, if my, if my own husband, my own parents couldn't save me, then, I mean, I don't know what anyone else could have done. It's not as crazy as what people like the reactions from moms are not as crazy as what people think it would be. Mm -hmm. I think that women's issues aren't openly talked about and being a young mother can be, 
um, really isolating. I think that you're, it's just assumed that this is the happiest time in your life and growing a child in your body and delivering that baby and raising that baby are probably some of the most difficult things that you can do. Um, we're not, we're not fully equipped as a culture to, um, prepare women for that. And also our healthcare system doesn't, um, provide the services that women need to be thriving mothers. Um, my newborn child goes to the doctor once a week and then once every two weeks and then once a month and they're constantly being monitored and cared for and make sure that they're growing and they are learning the skills they need to learn. However, after I deliver the baby, I only have one check-in and that's by not by a mental health professional. You know, I was fortunate enough to have a job at the time that was very generous from maternity leave. I had four months off, uh, and that's very generous for the U.S. Um, my job was secure. Uh, my manager at the time was a young mother herself, and, you know, she was very supportive of me. But not very many women have that, and um, I was very fortunate to have that. But our system just isn't equipped to deal with this kind of issue. It's, it's just get back to work and, you know, pay for daycare or pay for a nanny, feel broke for a while while, you know, you're getting your feet underneath you and figuring out what this new identity of yours is. It's like becoming a mother is a full on identity crisis. Everything you know about yourself is thrown out the window. Um, you've become a new person and you have, you're responsible for this life and, you're doing the best you can. And sometimes, you know, it'd be nice to have a little bit of help there. Yeah. No, but I think it's, I mean, of course, Europe has a different system, but I feel still that this topic is as much as relevant as in the States that, like, let's say you, you have a child as a young mother and, and sometimes through experiences like this, um, maybe kind of other things come out in your kind of psyche or in your system that lead to a depression. And before you would never thought you would ever experience that. So I think this movie, um, a trip of compassion about the, um, the MDMA therapy in, in, um, in Israel shows this pretty well, like how people have, have an experience that kind of triggers an old trauma in them. And it doesn't even have to be like a horrible experience, but maybe just some experience that they didn't even thought would actually trigger something that is leading to depression. So, and I think this whole topic is like, I feel this is like five years ago, there was no discourse, no discussion about this. Maybe with some very specific therapists in California mostly, but um, not in a broader let's say on, on, on the, on the LinkedIn news feed. So that wasn't there, right. <laughs> which is now no, basically. And it, it's interesting becoming a parent because, um, you finally see your life in the perspective of your own parent, And, mm -hmm. um, absolutely you realize certain traumas that you didn't even realize were traumas. You yeah. just thought it was a childhood experience. And, you know, I, I grew up with a very wonderful life. You know, I, um, my parents were, are immigrants from Iran and I grew up in the Midwest in a nice peaceful suburb. We had a, a nice home. I've always, I always had food on the table. I always had clothes that fit me. I went to a great school, but you know, you, Growing up a first-generation American in a, 
in the Midwest is it, it was a different, it's a different experience. Yeah, sure. I can no imagine. One, like I didn't know any kids that were Iranian American. Um, you know, my parents were doing the best that they could do. I, I, you know, but they grew up in a completely different environment and different culture and they were doing the best that they could do. But, you know, through working with the medicine and then just seeing life as a parent and seeing, raising my own children, it definitely brings up issues that you don't expect to deal with. And we need to have communities and systems in place to allow people to do that. I mean, I feel like women's health gets neglected a lot. You know, we have a lot of complicated issues that insurance companies don't always want to pay for. Um, And our healthcare system is run by insurance companies. They tell our doctors what to, how to treat people and what is allowed and what is not allowed and what they're going to reimburse doctors for. And they're dictating to us um, how we care for people. But what their priority is, is how much money they can make. And um, I'm hoping that this is this will trigger a shift into actually caring for human beings and creating a system that puts people first instead of profits. So did your parents, did they come from Tehran to yes. America? Yeah. Yes. Wow, interesting. Yes. In the 70s. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they integrated to D.C. I was born in D.C. Uh, I have a lot of family here still, but, you know, we somehow we ended up, you know, my father sold rugs like a typical Iranian. Um, we moved around a bunch in the early on in my childhood, but we settled in Minnesota. And um, it, it, like I said, it was an idyllic life. I, I had a, a wonderful childhood, but it is a different experience being first generation here. You're, yeah. you're constantly battling with your identity and how you fit into society. You know, and I think that that that's been an issue for me is, you know, how how I fit into the world. And then becoming a mother was um, another identity crisis that, you know, I wasn't expecting to have. Well, I mean, two two identity crises can lead to a really questioning of your whole life. I mean, some people even is enough if they have one identity crisis. But two, two questions about where do I come right. from? Why am I coming here? What am I doing here? So, I mean, it's kind of, I think we underestimated this for a very long time um, because like you had to pull yourself together. It's just the way it is. And at one point you have to so-and-so. But so, and, and how do you going to prepare for November now? So how do you want to have, what's your best outcome that you would like to have in November? I mean, the best outcome we could have is that we get close to 70% um, of D.C. voters saying yes to this. Mm -hmm. I think more realistically, we will get somewhere around 60 to 65. We did um, a poll in February and we talked to D.C. voters about the issue and how they would vote. And um, the beginning of the poll, they were um, support was at 50%. And then with just reading um, the description of the ballot initiative, that support jumped up to 60%. So very little education gave us 10 points um, additional to what the support that we already had. So in my mind, we are starting at this point at 60% approval, and it is our job to continue to drive those numbers up and hopefully get 
well over 60% voting yes in November with education. Um, we still have a lot of work to do with DC residents. I think that uh, it, it was helpful that we were in phase two when we were trying to gather the, the last part of our signatures and we had people out on the streets in our t-shirts, carrying our signs, having these really interesting conversations with DC voters. I think our presence was very um, well known because a lot, not a lot of people were out on the streets, but our right. campaign yeah. all over. And, you know, we need to like have real conversations with DC voters about what we're talking about. We're not talking about partying. Um, a lot of people are concerned with safety. We're not talking about getting in a car and driving under the influence. We need to talk about how, what these medicines do, what they are and how they help you. And I think the best outcome would be for DC voters to show that compassion and show that they relate to this issue by voting yes in November. So um, I would be happy with anything 65% and over. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're just trying to build coalitions right now with people um, who have their own networks of people that are supportive of us. We're reaching out to various government officials to ensure that, you know, they understand the issue. If any of their constituents call them, um, they can they can explain what we're talking about um, and then reaching out to other organizations. Um, anyone else that is friendly to the cause that would want to show some support for us. So we're, we're doing everything we can to get the word out about this. We do think that this is not a therapy for certain elite people, that this is a, a therapy that could be used for anybody, but most importantly, certain communities within the city that are underserved, who don't have access to fresh food, that um, are constantly exposed to violence, um, maybe don't have two parents at home and don't have the best schools to send their kids to. So like these types of neighborhoods are experiencing violence and trauma on almost a daily basis. You know, Mm -hmm. the rate of gun violence in DC is skyrocketing right now and because people are stressed out and traumatized and this is not um this is a socioeconomic issue but beyond anything this is a mental health issue these are people that have experienced generational trauma you know their their parents experience lived in this kind of violent environment and their their parents before them lived out in this violent environment and they've experienced systemic mm-hmm. racism so mm-hmm. um, we believe that the, the communities will step up and see that this is something that that has a real need in their communities it was great to have you on the show thank you so much Thank you, Anne. That and was a nice to talk to you. Sorry, say it again. It was nice to talk oh, to you. Yeah, Thanks. nice to talk to you. And um, keep us posted, fingers crossed, for November. I mean, it's not that long anymore. We hope everything goes well. And um, yeah, yeah, everything goes well. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, we've been thrown so many curveballs already that it's like, yeah. I don't want to. I don't want to get comfortable. <laughs> no, no, no. I know maybe what you mean. We'll shut down again. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, maybe, maybe, uh, let's see. It's going to be an interesting year, but yeah. you're on the, on a good way. Definitely. So, um, have a great day in, in Washington and, um, maybe talk soon. Yes. Thank you. Have a good day. Bye. Bye.